0: You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, Northway. Good to see you. Good to be here with you and opening God's word together. Uh, I just wanna echo everything that Brett said about our sister, Agosa. Uh, and if you know her, then you know that this is a, a big loss for us, but also a huge gain for um really just God's church, because she's gonna go and serve in a way that's gonna have an opportunity to impact a lot of folks. We're so thankful for that opportunity, Um, excited for her. My name is Brady Goodwin. I have the joy of serving as one of the pastors here. And uh, I wanna invite you to open up in the scriptures to Judges chapter four. We're continuing our series in the book of Judges that we have been in these last several weeks. And uh, this morning, we have the opportunity to look at something of a contrasting account in the book of Judges, not in its absence of violence, because there is that, of course. If you're interested in um, someone getting their temple crushed with a tent stake, that's coming for you. Um, But there are some contrasts that I think are really helpful for us as we think about what the overall message of the book of Judges is, and then there are some ways in which I hope to be able to um, think through some personal application. One of the challenges in a book that is separated by so much time and distance and content is making it real for our own lives, and I hope that that's something that we can do together this morning all through the lens of um, the, the greater story, that Judges is pointing to in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, So we're gonna look at Judges chapter four. We're gonna see some of these contrasts, but we're gonna do it through three different lenses. The first is the unlikely nature of the people who are a part of this story. This is the story of Deborah, who was the judge during this period, of Barak, who was the military commander that was a part of God's deliverance, and then of a woman named Jael who uh, represented the, uh, the literal kind of final nail in the coffin uh, in God's deliverance in this story. The second lens, as I mentioned, is this idea of personal application. What I want us to see is just how Scripture maps onto our lives. There is a way in which God intends for us to read these kinds of stories so that it layers upon our own experiences and either makes sense of them or helps to confirm or conform some things in our hearts. And I want to see what that looks like. And then, of course, how God's glory is revealed, that third lens through Jesus Christ, okay? So let's jump in and uh, we're going to look at this story, this first lens, these unlikely deliverers. We're going to read some of this We're looking at Judges 4 and 5 today, but we're not going to read all of it. This is a lengthy passage. Judges 5, just so you are aware, is a poetic, complementary perspective of the narrative events that happen in Judges 4. We're going to mention a couple of things related to Judges 5, but we'll spend most of our time looking at Judges 4. So let's begin looking at verse 1. We're going to see how this story begins in a familiar way. Judges four, verse one. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ahud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help for he had 900 chariots of iron and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Okay, this first little paragraph starts in a similar way. We have the, two ele- we have the first elements of this judge's cycle that we have been talking about over the last several weeks. This one, because it follows the period of Ehud's judging, uh, begins with a mention of his death the death of the preceding judge, and then what characteristically followed during this period, the nation's return to the sin of idolatry. This was followed by the oppression that they experienced at the hands of another nation. This time, Israel's oppressor was Jabin, king of Canaan. He reigned from Hazor, which was in the northern part of Israel above the Sea of Galilee. If you're familiar with the geography of that area, But Jabin's oppression was mediated through a general, uh, a man named Cicero. Cicero was located near the Mediterranean Sea. The only reason that we know that is because um, his his mention of having 900 chariots, chariots would have been something of a a seaside kind of weapon. It's hard to drive a chariot through a mountain. And so most folks think that he was located uh, in, in these near ocean plains because he was able to wield this force of 900 chariots. And this is basically like having um, armed tanks against uh, ground forces. This was a, uh, a force that would have been seen as insurmountable. And as a result, because of the military might that existed in Jabin and mediated through Sisera, the people of Israel suffered under oppression for an even longer period of time than what we have seen uh, often to this point, 20 years. But as with these other accounts of Israelite oppression throughout the book of Judges, the people cried out to the Lord and he heard their cries and he answered them. As we keep reading, the text is next going to introduce the leader that's going to bring deliverance to Israel. So let's look at verse four. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. So here we have the first unlikely deliverer in this account, Deborah. First thing you may have noticed about her is that she's the only female judge that we've seen to this point in the narrative. And you may be thinking, well, didn't we look at, we looked at Gideon last week, Gideon's chapter six. We're doing this a little bit out of order, in part because of the contrast that we see in Deborah, and almost as a way to bridge because the next two weeks, when we look at judges, Jephthah and Samson, they don't have a lot that's redeeming about them. Deborah has much that is to be commended. She is the first female judge to this point in the narrative. She is the only one in the entire book. She's also one of only five named women in the scriptures who have the title of prophetess. There's another unnamed prophetess in the book of Isaiah, who was Isaiah's wife. But I want you to see that this makes Deborah the only woman who served in a significant, recognized leadership role in the entirety of Israel's history. That is unique. Second, The fact that she was a prophetess, that she was someone who spoke from God to the people with a kind of authority makes her very unique. But maybe the thing that sets her apart most of all is that among the judges, she is the only one who we see that exhibits godliness. She doesn't fall into the same traps that Gideon does. She's not stabbing a dude in the stomach and letting the sword come out on the other end. She's not bringing down the house with the pillars like Samson did and killing hundreds of people. She walked in a kind of uprightness that was distinct among those that she served. This is pretty, pretty cool. I don't know about you, but of all the judges that are in the scriptures, in this book, I know who I would have wanted to go to for counsel and advice and direction. It would have been Deborah. Everyone else, I would have said, no, I don't, what's going on with you? But Deborah, despite being the judge over Israel in this period, she wasn't the only one that God set apart for deliverance for his people. We see another person introduced in verse six. Let's keep reading. Deborah sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kedesh Naphtali and said to him, "'Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, "'Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, "'taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali "'and the people of Zebulun? "'And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, "'to meet you by the river Kishon "'with his chariots and his troops, "'and I will give him into your hand.' "'Barak said to her, "'If you will go with me, I will go.' but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Nathali to Kedesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. So Barak is from the same general area where Jabin's army and Sisera were located, north of the Sea of Galilee in the northern part of the tribes of Israel. Deborah exhorts him to gather an army from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun and to go against Jabin's forces in battle with the promise that God is going to give them victory. But notice in verse 8 that Barak seems to hesitate. He says, if you're gonna go with me, I'll go, but if not, no thanks. He either hesitates because of fear of the outcome, but maybe also in recognition that because Deborah was the accepted leader set apart by God, that her presence meant God's presence as they went against the forces of Sisera. Either way, she says that she'll be with him, and he therefore answers the call to lead. But notice the prediction that she makes in verse nine that even though Barak in military victory was going to go and lead the troops, he wasn't going to receive the glory for their success, which sets him apart from other figures like Othniel and Ehud and Gideon, um, and even more, the other wicked judges that we see in this narrative, because Sisera was going to fall by the hand of a woman. Deborah doesn't say that it's her. She's not specific. So who is this woman? In verse 11, as we keep reading, we're gonna see an interjection into the narrative that clues us into her identity. Verse 11, now Heber the Kenite, which by the way, all these names, the pronunciations of the names, it's kind of, what is, how do you say that? I don't really know. So if you read it and went, Barak, I always said Barak, or I said Barak, or you get it. Uh, Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants, let's see, here it is again, Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zananim, which is near Kedesh. Okay, who is Heber? Heber was not a part of the people of Israel, but he was an ally. He lived near the border of Naphtali and East Manasseh, the river of Jordan, separated those two tribes. We're not told exactly why he is introduced up to this point, but he's there for a reason. We don't know how this connects to the woman about whom Deborah prophesied until later in the narrative. We're gonna find out. As the text continues in verses 12 through 16, Barak leads this Israelite coalition forces from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun into battle against Sisera and Jabin's army. And despite this obvious advantage, Sisera had 900 chariots. And even though you go 10,000 versus 900, it really would have been no contest because of the power of each of these Chariots, even though that advantage was there, his army fell into battle and it brought victory to Israel through Barak's leadership. But Sisera escaped. He didn't, he didn't fall in the same way that the rest of their forces fell. And it's here that we see the introduction of the woman I mentioned earlier, Jael. Jael was the wife of Heber the Kenite. Let's look at verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, "'Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid.' So he turned aside to her into her tent, and she covered him with a rug, and he said to her, "'Please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty.' So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say, no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. And she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. He died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, come and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. So we see God delivering Israel from Jabin's forces and Sisera by the hand of Jael, the wife of Heber. You might be going, why is Jael unlikely? I mean, it's unlikely because this is still one of those things where you go, man, that's creative but I don't really know. It's the first time I've seen that happen. Sisera thought Jael was an ally. The house of Heber had an allied relationship with the house of Jabin, but actually Jael was an ally of Israel. And she came as someone who wasn't even a part of the nation, yet acted on behalf of the people of God because of the oppression that they suffered. Sisera was not an innocent party. What we're gonna see in chapter five, you may be going, what about chapter five? Chapter five gives us further context and detail to the state of things. The beginning of chapter five, it's all poetry. It's a song that is sung. But basically what Deborah says is things were really, really terrible. It was so bad that there was no life in the streets. There was no... People were not coming and going because of fear of what they would suffer. And yet now people answered the call and they rose up to fight against their oppressors. Jael is celebrated. And at the end of the chapter, Sisera is maligned as someone who's much worse than just a military commander, but someone who oppressed his peop- the people of Israel, but also was a wicked, abusive person for the people in his own land. So Jael knew this and understood what was at stake, and she took action, which makes her unlikely because of the way in which she did it, but also who she was. And what we see in this first lens are these three unlikely leaders. We have an unorthodox, atypical leader in Israel. We have a humble but perhaps fearful military commander who says, ah, "If you're not with me, I'm not going." And we have an outsider who ultimately brings deliverance. And all of this for a people who actually spurned God's loving rule when he continued to love them despite their sins. So I mentioned three lenses. The first one is this, just seeing what the text says. What's the story that we see? God moves in power to deliver. He uses whomever he will. He does it despite the apparent contradictions that we might feel are there. And he gets the glory. But what is the second lens? The second lens is this. What does a story like this of Deborah and Barak and Jael reveal about our own hearts and our needs? And I wanna talk about how we can see this mapping onto our lives. First, let's think about this in a general sense. How does scripture map onto our lives? We have to take a step back and consider some of what God's purposes are for his word. First is this, God has given us the Bible. Chiefly, so that we would know of the redemptive work of Christ through the gospel. We need to see the narrative of what God is doing in the world. One of the reasons we have the scriptures, uh, the chief reason we have the scriptures, is so that we would know how to think about this story in which we have all uh, been given a part to play. This is what Paul will say in 2 Timothy 3.15 because he says that the scriptures are able to make a person wise unto salvation. They're able to help a person see the fullness of what God is doing in redemption and to lead them to faith and trust and belief in those promises through Jesus Christ. They contain the message of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. They help us to see that every story, even this one, guy getting killed with a tent pack, is part of the overall narrative that finds its center in Jesus Christ. Second, and I would probably say as a direct implication of this reality, Scripture is also one of the primary means by which God changes us. You might go, how does a book change a person? I read Harry Potter, it doesn't change me. Maybe it does. Not in the same way. Um, I just want butterbeer or, sorry. (laughs) Um, Lord of the Rings, thank you. I'm trying to restrain myself, Lucia, to not just always have a Lord of the Rings reference in a sermon. Um, There's books that affect us, in other words. I recently finished the novel Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry, written about 35 years ago. The author passed away. I read it, and my wife goes, are you okay? I was like, I'm sad. It was a really deeply affecting book, but it doesn't change me. Scripture is the only book ever, the only set of writings that has the power to actually change us. How? Practically, this happens as we actually come to the Scriptures and in reading them, see where the boundary lines of Scripture either align or divert from our own lives. The very next verse to what I mentioned with Paul in 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 3.16, tells us why all Scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture comes from God itself. It is God speaking to us. The reason that scripture has the power that it does is because when we read it, we read the very words of God, the only one who has the power to transform a human heart. As a result, what Paul will go on to say is that because scripture is breathed out by God, inspired by God, It is profitable, it's useful. It has a power to affect change in four ways, to teach us what is true, to help reveal where we believe wrongly about the world, to help to highlight dysfunctional, sinful patterns of relating in the world, and to teach us how to live in accordance with godliness and faith. Scripture is the resource that highlights the areas of misalignment in our hearts, and it also provides the necessary corrective compass points for our lives as believers. This power to effect change becomes truly real when Scripture exposes specific areas of our hearts that are in need of change. Okay, you would go, yeah, I know Scripture helps us to know what's true and how we're to live in a general sense, but I'm talking about how God works in the specifics of your life, okay? This is often a different level of engagement with the scriptures than we even do in this kind of room because it has to do with what are the things you are dealing with right now? What are the hardships that you are experiencing? What are the struggles that you are facing and we come to the Scriptures with a knowledge that God actually intends to address those specific things, which is how we start to get a sense of how could Judges 4 and 5 relate to me? Well, it's when God goes, boom, here's how it relates. That thing you're dealing with, that conflict you're having, that, that struggle you're facing, I intend to show you something. This is what we mean when we look at a passage like Hebrews 4, verse 12, which says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. But it also says that Scripture is able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the human heart. What does that mean? In other words, the Bible, because it is alive from the Holy Spirit of God, it's able to show what's really in you. You ever have a conversation with someone and they just read your mail? Well, that's only a small glimpse of what God often does through his word. You read it and you just go, whoa, wasn't expecting that to happen. But what does this actually look like? How do you do it? How do you get there? I think that scripture reveals our hearts as we read it, first with a posture of humility and second with an openness to embrace the truth that God would have us receive. If you come to the scriptures from a posture of, I'm just reading this to read it, I'm just doing it because someone has said I should or I think I should, or I'm looking for some specific answer that I already have in my mind to validate my current perspective, we shouldn't expect to hear God say much to us. But if we come with openness, if we come with a willingness to say, whatever you have, Lord, I am going to take with gladness, whether it hurts or builds up, he will start to speak to us. This happens whether you read scripture with a set reading plan, whether you are studying a specific passage or meditating on a particular verse or a phrase, and God brings to mind something in your life that relates to what you've just read. Sometimes this happens in overt ways, but sometimes it's a little bit more subtle. This has happened many times in my life. I think it probably has for you as I've talked with people over the years. This isn't a unique experience by any stretch. This happens all the time, And it's what happened to me in preparing for today. That's why I'm talking about it now. When I first read Judges 4, I was really struck by what Deborah said to Barak in verses eight and nine, when she issued that charge to lead the Israelite forces. Let's go back and look at what it said. Barak said to Deborah, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you were going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. Deborah tells Barak that he's not going to receive the glory. That phrase, nevertheless, the road on which you were going will not lead to your glory, hit on something very specific in my heart. Of course, I'm interested in what the passage originally meant. I want to be able to communicate that faithfully to us. I want to guard against reading something into the text that isn't there. But at the same time, what I believe God was saying to me was this, is just like Barack, you would seek your own glory if it was up to you. And you would be tempted to shirk your calling if there wasn't some promise of recognition on the other side. What God was revealing as I read this passage was pride. Okay, I know that pride is there in a general sense. And I hope you recognize that, right? First John 1 says that if any of us say we are without sin, we make him out to be a liar and the truth is not in us. But I hope you have enough self-awareness to recognize that there is pride in your life. But what God was doing was saying, nope, there. That's where the pride is for you. That's where it is right now. And you might go, well, pride, isn't that just arrogance, boasting? Isn't that kind of claiming you're something that you're not? We have to make sure that our definition is correct and not a cultural definition that equates it to some positive um, self-expression. Those things are symptoms of real pride, but they're not the only way that pride is expressed. When we examine Scripture, what we learn is that pride has everything to do with a heightened focus on ourselves. Okay, this starts with what we're after, self-centered goals. It starts with the reasons why we're after it, through self-seeking motivations. And it has to do with the places of strength we will turn to in order to get it, which has to do with self-reliant means. Prideful people, in other words, are just about themselves. Self-rule, self-glory, self-focus, self-pity, self-condemnation, self-aggrandizement, which is exalting yourself above other people, self-worship. Pride is blinding though because what we don't even realize is instead of dependence upon God and his word through prayer, what starts to happen little by little is disfellowship with God, self-reliance, turning upon your own strengths. Why do people do this? We do it because we don't believe we need God. And therefore, we don't really care if he speaks to us. And in turn, we don't want to speak to him. Pride is as dangerous as it is blinding. And it blinds us almost entirely to the truth of who God is and who we really are. Who are we really? We're weak. We're needy. We're dependent. We're broken. We're limited. The great Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter, he described pride in this way. It's a state of being whereby a person is blinded from his true condition and from God's true identity and therefore reverses every rightful estimation of both uh, of both of those things as he seeks his own glory to either the exclusion or the subordination of God's glory. Okay, so in my flesh, that's me to a T. That's who I am in my default state. I rely upon training, gifting, skill, intellect, whatever benefit those things might provide. What happens when this takes place is that the posture of my heart leads me to being like a man who's trying to run on one leg. You ever try that? Probably not, unless you only have one leg, and then you might. But if that's you, what you find is that you're not going to get very far, and if you do make any progress, you're just going to run in circles because the self-centeredness that keeps you in that same place keeps you bound to focusing on yourself alone. When this happens for me, as I expect, what takes place when it happens for you is that you are unable to love God and to love others because you're too, too busy focusing on how to love yourself. And that's really dangerous. Is this the reason why God chose for Barak to lead the army into battle but not have the final claim to victory? I don't know. I don't think that we should read too much into it beyond the fact that he says, I'm not going to do it, and there's some sense of recognition that he realizes he's not able to do it on his own. But what I can tell you is that God used that phrase to hit something in my life, to impart his truth to me, And I know that this is so often the way that he does this with you. What is he showing you in a passage like this about your own need? What is he revealing about the thoughts and intentions of your heart and the sinfulness therein? Whatever that might be, whatever that thing is, that need, that understanding of your own frailty of your own brokenness and dependence and need for reliance upon God, this is how it leads us to the third lens. That third lens that I want us to think through related to the story of Deborah and Barak and JL is how the glory of God through the gospel is seen through such an account and what that means for our lives. Okay, what we've done so far, just so you get a sense of it, if we've looked at what what, what actually happened in this story, how might that hit on some things in my life or your life, and how does it resolve? Because you might go, man, sounds like Brady's got lots of problems. How does it actually find resolution? How do we see something different than just bam? And This is where we come back to what is going on in the entirety of the story. When we look at old pastors and writers, we often see a really beautiful way that they take scriptures that seem somewhat obscure and connect them to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon, the great English orator and preacher, gave a sermon on this passage, really verse 422, way back in 1860, and the sermon was called Sin Slain. Look at verse four or ch- chapter 4, verse 22 with me, just so you can get a sense of what he based that sermon on, it's when Jael did what she did with Sisera. Behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, come and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. What Spurgeon saw in preaching that text was three things. The first was the plight of human bondage under the weight of sin's oppression in a general sense and how this is vividly displayed through the pain of the Israelites under the domination of Jabin and Sisera and especially in the contrast with the former freedom that they enjoyed after being delivered from Egypt. Israel knew what it was like to be in bondage and yet they went back to the same sources that produced that bondage and they found themselves crying out for freedom. And he likens that to what it's like when we fall prey to the oppression of sin in our own hearts. Like most who find themselves in such a condition, Spurgeon described how there is also often this deep longing to be free of such bonds. And he looked at the purposes of a man's heart to secure his freedom, that we think about ways to find freedom. We think about ways to break loose. This is what he saw in Deborah and Barak's military planning, and the often valiant efforts that come when a person is determined to be rid of sins, bondage, and corruption. But what we have noticed and what we see even in this text is that a person in and of themselves, like Barak, they're not able to find victory on their own. Barak needed Jael's deliverance to vanquish the enemy. What Spurgeon connected is that just as Jael slayed Sisera, so too has Jesus slain sin. We read the truth of this in places like Romans 8.3, where Paul says, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. What does that mean? The law couldn't do what God Required, it could not produce righteousness in a person's heart. And so instead, Jesus came, the eternal son, God in the flesh, fully God, fully man, taking on the form of a person to live a life like ours, but also coming to defeat sin itself. And when it says he condemned sin in the flesh, what it means is by going to the cross and by suffering the way that he did, he actually put sin to death which is something that we have to hear again and again and again. Because as important as it is to have a right understanding of what we're up against, the knowledge of our enemy is not enough. We have to have the power to vanquish it. What Spurgeon saw, what we must see as well is that Jesus and Jesus alone is able to put to death what we ourselves would otherwise experience that leads to our own death. When he went to the cross, he allowed himself to have nails driven into his body. But like Jael, he was holding the ultimate stake that was going to slay the greatest of our enemies. We have to be able to see how this connects. Going back to Richard Baxter, one of his really helpful observations was him saying essentially that the antidote to pride is actually seeing its presence. I hate to hesitate uh, to agree with someone who wrote like 400 years ago and who wrote books. I mean, literally the the whole resource I was studying this week and some of our staff saw, what are you reading? Because I was reading from a book that Richard Baxter wrote called A Christian Directory. It's 900 pages long, but it's 900 pages long of like 0.7 typeface with two columns on each page. And I just said, well, he was single. He had a lot of time. So I don't wanna, I mean, he spent a lot of time thinking about this and he's so right. So much of the antidote is just simply seeing that that's something that's actually there in a person's heart. But what do you do when you know it's there? You have to have someone to turn to who can help remedy the problem. You have to be able to see that the only way that deliverance is really going to come is because you're not the one doing it, but Jesus himself is so these three lenses are the way in which we line up. What does it say? What does a passage say to us? How does it start to impact our own hearts and our own lives? And all of that coming back together. What is the good news that we so desperately need when God inevitably reveals the true state of our hearts? The forgiving grace of Jesus Christ that says, you can find freedom. You can find deliverance, but it's going to require you turning to me and not yourself. I want to pray for us. We're going to take some time together to think about this as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Let me pray as we prepare to enter into that space as well. Father, we come to you this morning. We are mindful of what you intend to do through the reading of your word, Lord, would you speak to our hearts? Would you reveal those places even more where we need the grace of our Lord Jesus? Would you help us to see the incredible provision that comes in trusting him, believing upon his life and his death and his resurrection, bringing nothing to the table, but accepting everything that is laid before us as fully welcomed guests, Help us to these ends, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus Christ. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 1115 a.m., and 4 p.m. And would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.